I had a dream, a dream about old Broadway. It was the talk of the world, Broadway. But now some say it's through Broadway. Are they right? Are they wrong? Are you liking me singing this here song? Then come along and hear about the golden age of old Broadway. This week on This Was a Thing. This was a thing Cigarette ads and Disneyland This was a thing Deborah and Bert kiss in the sand Lana Turner kicks the bucket Elvis Presley starts to sing And Liz Taylor's many husbands were a thing Hi, I'm Ray. And I'm Rob. And you're listening to This Was a Thing, the podcast that dives deep into the cultural happenings of yesteryear. And on today's episode, uh, the Tony Awards are going to be right around the corner pretty soon in this lovely spring. It's a very busy time on Broadway right now because this is the time when all the shows are trying to get themselves in for the Tony Awards. Oh. Yes, they want to be fresh in the voters' minds, like when they do the big Oscar dump at the uh, in the wintertime, so that way you're still fresh in the uh, voters' minds. I love a good Oscar dump. We're going to be looking at the golden age of musical theater, which lasted from 1943 to 1964 in New York on Broadway. Great years. Now, Ray, you, I know, are like me and do love the Broadway. Is that correct? How many people are going to hear this? Uh, just you, me, and my dad. Oh, yeah, then I, yeah, totally. I'm going to quiz you, Ray. 43, do you know what the musical starts the Golden Age? Uh, would that be Showboat? No, that's Oklahoma. That was 27. Uh, Oklahoma, Oklahoma. Oklahoma, yeah, yeah, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, what show ends it, some people will say? Uh, uh, it's a bird to playing it's Superman. <laughs> no, <laughs> Fiddler on the Roof. Oh, okay. Fiddler on the Roof. Same writers. Same, same exact writers and uh, same character. George Reeves was up for Tevye. <laughs> now, this was a thing because it was the first purely American form of entertainment to emerge within the United States, and it became the representative of American entertainment and what makes an American across the world. Can you imagine, like, people in Sri Lanka and Tokyo? Going, ah, this is what makes an American and thinking all women are Ethel Merman. Yeah, I would, that would be a delight. So, yes, during the golden age of musical theater, when you thought of entertainment, regardless of your age, you thought of Broadway. You'd wait outside for the newest cast recording. Your dances at the prom might be the instrumental versions of show tunes. And even if you lived in Podunk, you knew what was happening on Broadway because Broadway is going to be the first arts medium, I think, that is going to rely on other art forms to help push it along, and that would be film and television. Film doesn't need TV and theater. Television did not need film or theater, but theater 
will actually need film and TV to survive during this golden age of musical theater. So we're going to do a little bit of a, a little beginnings here just to remind us of how like musical theater came to be. So if you remember from the, most people think that theater started over in Greece. It didn't actually start it over in Africa, but most people thought it's, it's true. It's true. African people have really just gotten all forms of art <laughs> stolen from them. That would be correct. No, most there's, a, there's this idea that Greek, the drama started in Greece with people like Thespis and Dionysus, but you can go back even earlier. And in Egypt, they have uh, records of something called the Abydos Passion Play, which meant that like theater was happening in Africa way before it was even wow. happening over in Greece. But I think because only now we're starting to like expand outside yeah. of like the old history. Are we starting to learn this stuff wow. and it's starting to be implemented? There was music in Greek plays, but the music never moved the story along. It was supposed to just simply comment on the action or sometimes it was a prayer like up to the gods. But music had always been around in theater, but never used as a form of like, we're moving our story along. Does that make sense? Yeah. So anyway, so yes, music was always around. Then in the 1500s in Italy, there was a group known as the Florentine Camerata that makes an amazing manicotti. Um <laughs> all gluten-free. <laughs> and this group was like, hey, I wonder if we could tell a story like they do in plays, but instead of speaking at all, what if they sung at all? And what they end up creating is... Les Mis. <laughs> Unfortunately, they created Les Mis, and this group should be executed if you can find them. Jean Valjean, you're gonna be dead. Jean Valjean, you stole some bread. <laughs> Not the candlesticks. How much you want to bet he stole the bread and went back to his sister, and she's like, does that have gluten? Yeah. <laughs> what? I'm going to jail because you included. In the 1700s, out came ballet, and uh, I'm sure a couple of ballerinas at the same time also came out in the 1700s. <laughs> Motherfucker, I have something to tell you. And their idea was doing dance as the pure, primary form of storytelling. So no singing, no speaking, just using your bodies to move. Then the first like form of musical that we're going to run into is uh, in 1728. It's called the Beggar's Opera. And in this, there was a playwright by the name of John Gay. And John Gay decided, hey, wouldn't it be interesting if we did a play, but we had songs in the play, but I'll use contemporary songs everybody knows, but I'm going to rewrite the lyrics so they fit the play. The first time, though, the idea of telling a story with new music, new lyrics, new dialogue, and it all comes together is in 1866 with a musical called The Black crook the black crook actually happens ironically by accident so what happens is is there's a play called the black crook which is the faust story do you know the faust story it's like the guy will sell his soul to the devil yeah yeah, yeah. okay so the guy well, there's one one production of that that's about to go on and the same producer of that um has like a french ballet come over so it's a bunch of ballerinas that come over unfortunately there's a fire their theater burns down and all these ballerinas are just sitting around waiting to do some work and so they're like well what are we going to do and he's like well i'll put you i'll put you in this faustus show and you can like be you know the devil's assistants who dance around him and then maybe we can sing a song so what's being what i'm i'm not joking what's, I know. what's being created is a musical based on the fact that this guy is cheap and wants to get his money's worth out of everybody. Isn't that how most musicals are done That today? is correct. Yeah. That is absolutely correct. So history is always like, hey, oh my God, The Black Crook was the first musical because of this, this, and this, and that's why it was such a success. Because the show ran for a long time, and the idea was, oh, people must be coming to see this because it's really revolutionary and innovative. It was just all the family and friends. <laughs> a huge <laughs> cast. So then after The Black Crook comes something known as operetta, and that's people like Gilbert and Sullivan from England. Now, as time marches on, we get into the 20th century, and in the 20th century, musicals are all pretty much the same. In the 1900s and 1910s, they're mostly like 
very exotic, like you go to exotic locales. It's always a man loves a woman and he can't be with her for whatever reason. But it was very big and elaborate. There would be like bands of like an orchestra of like a hundred instruments, like casts of a hundred on stage. I mean, it was a very, very big epic thing. And there was a guy by the name of Jerome Kern. And Jerome Kern is like, hey, why don't we create a musical that's not always so big in scope, doesn't always take place in a foreign land. He's like, why can't musicals look more like the people that are seeing the musicals. And not a lot of people were excited by this idea. So he and two friends bought something called the Princess Theater, which was a smaller Broadway theater. And what they decided to do was to present like contemporary shows, shows that took place today, shows that were about young people, and shows that seemed familiar. So he ushers in a whole new wave of doing musicals. And so the 1920s come along and musicals of the 1920s are silly and they're frivolous. And the idea is, is to entertain the audience. And what happens is, is they'll get a great bunch of songs together and then write like a really thin story around it. The Jukebox mo- musical. Uh, kind of, kind of, except the songs aren't pre-existing. And that's true. Yeah, yeah, they're all sure. original songs. But it does not fucking matter who sings them where they go in the show. It's just, it's all about entertaining the audience. And the stories are really thin. Like there's a show called No, No, Nanette, in which Nanette wants to do something and everybody says to her, No, no. That's the show. And then also like the actors back then were not really actors per se. They were more personalities. So this is people like George M. Cohan and Eddie Cantor and Al Jolson. But some of the people in like they were vaudeville performers at this time that were actually getting featured in musicals all, all had like one thing they could do. And no matter what was happening in the musical, they would just automatically show up and do it. There's one musical. I can't remember the name of it. Took place in ancient Egypt, I think. Um, and it starred a guy named Ukulele Ike. And Ukulele Ike was a vaudeville performer who played, yes, you guessed it, the ukulele. Which was very prominent in ancient Egypt. And at like at 10 o'clock in the show out of nowhere, like they opened up a sarcophagus and out comes Ukulele Ike and he plays the ukulele and then he went back into the sarcophagus and the audience like, that was Ukulele Ike. But nobody ever sat there going, what the fuck was that? Nobody ever thought that, which is going to be the main problem. Okay. With musicals at this time. We call them like Cinderella musicals because all of these plots in the 20s and 30s were pretty much the same, which is like boy meets girl, boy can't be with girl because there's something separating them. Now in Cinderella, it's what's separating them. She's what and he's what? Uh, She's a woman and he's a man? No, 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 man. Okay. Okay, yeah, oh, kind she's, of. She's she's rich, or she's poor and he's rich. Absolutely. But because it's New York in the early 1900s, instead of using class, they're going to take a look at all the immigrants around them. And a lot of the Cinderella shows are going to be about people that are, cannot be together because of their ethnicity. This He's Irish, she's Polish. They're not going to be together. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's sort of, but they're all pretty light and frivolous and fun. That's the general idea. Remember that Jerome Kern guy? Mm-hmm. In 1927, he's going to say, I think we can push even further further in terms of like what musical theater can do. And so he does a show called Showboat. And the lyricist on that is going to be a guy named Oscar Hammerstein. And what makes Showboat different than like any other musical from its time is, first of all, it's a serious musical. All musicals pretty much up until Showboat were called musical comedies. You can't really call Showboat a musical comedy. Most musicals back then took place over a period of like 24 hours at most. Showboat's going to take place over about 50 years. Oh, wow. And the story of it is it's a showboat, which means it's an entertainment boat that goes up and down the Mississippi River. There's entertainment on the boat, right? Mm -hmm. But what's going to be interesting is is that all of the Couples in this particular show are going to be dealing with very serious issues that you don't really talk about in musical theater. One couple is an, uh, is a gambler and has a gambling addiction. 
Kenny Rogers. It's Kenny Rogers. He knows when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away. One couple is the black workers that are on the ship, and the famous song Old Man River comes from Showboat, and that was Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein's attempt to show white audiences that regardless of the color of your skin, everybody is human underneath it, which was a pretty seismic moment, not only in musical theater history, but in theater history for people to realize that. And also the second couple is probably the most interesting couple because there is a woman who passes for white, but actually is black. And she marries a white man. And when the town finds out that this is an interracial marriage, they're going to come and arrest her and, and arrest the husband. And so what the husband does is he pricks his finger and pricks her finger and they rub the bloody fingers together. And that way, when they show up, he says, and this is the line, I have Negro blood in me. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. So imagine that you've just seen like ukulele Ike <laughs> on Monday and now on Tuesday, you're seeing this. I love coming to New York for a week of theater. I just, they're all so fun. Showboat. Oh, it's my two favorite things. Boats and shows. <laughs> Let's see what the, oh my God. Ah. Oh. <laughs> Why does he have a knife? Ah. Oh. Gaylord, what? <laughs> That's a Gaylord Ravenel. So not only is the show dealing with these like contemporary themes, but something interesting is happening. It used to be in a musical, you would be like, out of nowhere, just be like, five, six, seven, eight, and music would start to play. Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein are like, can we get to a place where like the dialogue just sort of seamlessly transitions into the song? So it just feels like an extension of the scene. It doesn't feel like two separate parts. Yeah. It's also pretty revolutionary. Audience goes to see it. Curtain goes up. They perform the show. Curtain goes down. There is no curtain call which is pretty revolutionary. No one comes out to bow. And nobody in the audience um, applauded. And so everyone was like, this is a flop. This is a big old failure. And the next day, there's lines around the block. It's not that they didn't applaud because they didn't like it. They were in shock. They were Seriously, they were just in shock about what they saw and how wonderful it was. So everyone starts to think in 1927, oh, oh, a showboat's going to be the way that everybody goes. But something happens that cannot be stopped and that is the great depression yes ethel merman had a really bad week (laughs) she didn't go into the theater at all no the great depression rolls around and that means suddenly people want escapist entertainment they don't want to see these serious contemporary issues like harry houdini escapist no 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 like i i hate my life i want to go watch tv but he was an escapist though. no i know i just meant like like you want to escape from your problems got it yes i do people want to see escapist entertainment and so the next era that we get is known as the champagne musicals and these are musicals about a bunch of rich people that are all sitting around having a nice time on cruise ships on ho- in the luxury hotels wearing tuxedos it's like and the kardashians now it's just like the kardashians now exactly And so this goes on for a while, and then in 1943, the game is going to change, and that brings us up to the beginning of the golden age of American musical theater. Now, just a reminder, what does golden age mean, Ray? If something is, if we're in a golden age. It's great. It's a beautiful, wonderful time. It's a great, beautiful, wonderful. What a time to be alive. Yes, but also very fertile. Like a lot of a lot of things are being created during this time. Got it. Does that make sense? Yeah. But you're right. It's of a high quality. So it's got to be a lot, and it's got to be good. So that's what's going to start this golden age of musical theater, because in 1943, there's a composer by the name of Richard Rogers, and he works with a lyricist named Lorenz Hart, the team of Rogers and Hart. Mm-hmm. And there's Oscar Hammerstein, who was working with Jerome Kern. Remember, they worked together on Showboat. Well, it's 1943. 
Kern moves out to Hollywood, and Lorenz Hart is such a bad alcoholic that Richard Rogers doesn't want to work with him anymore. So Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein get drinks, and they start talking about like possible projects that maybe they could work on together. And the thing that they wanted to work on more than anything was they said all of the stuff that's going on now in terms of the world of theater is like very realistic and he goes, you go to a musical and it doesn't have logic to it. He's like, all the plays have logic to it. None of the musicals have logic to it. Can we create a piece in which people will be talking, but the emotion is so heightened they have to start singing it, and then that becomes so heightened they have to start dancing it? And what they decide on is a to adapt a play called Green Grow the Lilacs. Beautiful. Beautiful title. And it's the story of a farmhand who's living in Oklahoma, who takes, who wants to take a young lady to a dance. She's afraid to go because there's a big brute in town. It's kind of obvious to figure out like who she should be going with, but it's taking her a while. So they decide to take this and they're going to call it a, mu- they're going to call it Away We Go. That's going to be the name of the musical, right? And so they go off and uh, they try it out up in Boston and it's actually pretty groundbreaking. The one thing they do is they do change the title of it, so it stops being called Away We Go, and it's now called... Poughkeepsie. Oklahoma. Oh. It's called Oklahoma. And Oklahoma is what many people refer to as not only the first Golden Age musical, but the first integrated musical, meaning that the dialogue seamlessly goes into the song, which seamlessly goes into the dancing of it. And the dancing was also pretty revolutionary, and we're going to talk about that in a second. The greatest example of this, and I wish this was a visual so I could show it to you, is there's, uh, like I said, in the play, you're wondering why does this young lady, not why does she not choose between the, there's a good guy, there's a bad guy. Why isn't she choosing the good guy? So at the end of act one, there's a scene in Oklahoma where they're asking her like, what's going on? And she then starts to, she talks about it. Then she starts singing about it because her emotions are so heightened. And then they get so heightened that she has to dance it. And what we get is inside of her mind for the first time. And we're now going inside her interior world. Nobody had ever seen this like in a musical before. And in it, she dances out the idea that she's so in love with the young, good-looking guy that the big guy's going to kill him. Carly. Carly. Does that make sense? Yes. Without that, like, you don't know what the hell exactly is going on. And it finally said to audiences that music, dialogue, and dance can all work together, but they always have to move the story along. No more ukulele, Ike. No, no more like hit it. Everything has to now be integrated and logical the way it is in a play. This is revolutionary. It's also the same time that World War II is starting. And if you're going off to fight, you most likely have to go through New York City And so what a lot of the armed forces was doing is once people got to New York, they were buying them tickets to see Oklahoma to show them what they were going to die for or what they were fighting for. So for a lot of people, the last piece of American entertainment they ever saw was Oklahoma. So not only was that happening, but Oklahoma revolutionizes the way theater gets to people because they get the very bright idea of going into a studio with all of the original cast members and making an album of the show. And what they create is the original cast recording. And then they press that onto records. And then even if you're living in Oregon or California or you're living not even in the United States, you can get this record and you can listen 
to Oklahoma. So you feel like you're part of that conversation as well. You got to make sure it says OBC on it, though. Absolutely. And don't call it a soundtrack. Otherwise, there's going to be problems. OBC stands for Original Broadway Cast. Ray, you're so good. Then Hollywood at this time is also making movies of so many of these musicals. So if once again, if you can't go to New York to see Oklahoma, you can hear it on the radio. You can buy it in the record store. You can see it on the big screen. And it'll maybe tour around the country, so it'll come to your neighborhood at some point. It might even come to your country at some point. So because Oklahoma was so revolutionary and felt so logical and felt so right, then everyone goes, maybe we should be trying to create musicals in that same mold. So all of that, like, stupid, silly 20s and 30s stuff, that's all gone from this point out. And the kings of the golden age are Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein because their musicals are so incredibly, one, integrated, but willing to tackle subject matter that nobody else wants to tackle. So their next musical is a show called Carousel. Carousel is the story of a man who's a carnival barker, and he uh, acts very impulsively, gets himself into a marriage, and in the marriage, he's abusive. He's a layabout. He abuses his wife. The whole town keeps looking at this woman going, why are you still with him? She reveals to him that she's pregnant with his child, and there's something about that that changes his outlook on life, and he decides to be nicer and kinder, and he now realizes he needs to like actually make some money for the child, and he does, thinks he's going to do that by robbery, and he gets killed in the robbery. And you would think that would sort of be the end of the show, and it's not, because then the rest of the show is about him going to heaven and getting the chance to interact with his daughter, who he's never met in the real world one last time, and he goes off and he hits her. The daughter? He hits, he hits the, daughter. the daughter, too. And it's very, this is like a cycle of abuse. It's a cycle of life. So that's a pretty controversial show. Their next big one is South Pacific, which you've been in or haven't been in? No, but I washed that man Hand right, right out, out of my hair. hair. Now, South Pacific is also a show that really moves the needle for us. One, wins the Pulitzer Prize. Oh, um, well, I didn't very, know that. And very rarely back then were musicals given uh, the Pulitzer Prize. In South Pacific, though, this is also the genius of Rodgers and Hammerstein, is also trying to pull the rug, not the rug out from under you in a massive way, but in a way that feels like, hey, think about that plays at this time where making people go home and think about their lives and think about who they were. So Rogers and Hammerstein, like, why can't musicals do the same thing? And in South Pacific, we meet a nurse named Nellie Forbush, played by Mary Martin. She's going to marry this guy. The audience loves her as a character. She's fun. She's silly. She's incredible. And she's about to get married to this guy. And she knows he has kids. She knows he was married before and that his first wife died. And she meets the kids, but the kids are interracial. And she goes, wait a minute. Were you in an interracial marriage and your kids are interracial? She goes, I don't know if I can do this. And all of a sudden, the whole audience finds out, oh, my God, this girl that we were like rooting for, she's racist, which was pretty bold at the time. Mm -hmm. So... South Pacific is a show about racism, and one of the most famous songs from South Pacific, it's probably the one that won them the, won them the Pulitzer Prize, is a song called You've Got to Be Carefully Taught, which a young soldier sings when someone intrudes on his relationship with one of the local girls there. You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught. 
so there's there's that going on. Now, I want to introduce you to a couple of other people that are working at this time. Hello. Hello. Everyone come and say hi to Ray. Oh, my gosh. Let me get Ray, more chairs. Is, Ray, this is Cole Porter. Oh, I love your work. Ray, uh, Cole Porter was a uh, 1930s composer, and he was also pretty big in the golden age of musical theater with the great show Kiss Me, Kate. My favorite musical theater quote comes from Cole Porter, and I learned this in your musical theater class. Which is? What he said about Ethel Merman. What did he say? About when he writes lyrics for her. Oh, say it, yes. Well, the, he said that Ethel, he has to write lyrics. When he writes lyrics for Ethel Merman, that they have to be good, because everyone in the theater is going to hear it. Yes, theaters back then were not amplified, and because of that, uh, you needed a really loud voice, because you had to sing over the whole orchestra and get to the back of a Broadway theater, and Ethel Merman had pipes of gold. Don't believe me? Here she is! Uh, what about rent? No, <laughs> we're in the golden age. Oh. Rent's not part of the golden age. But Ray, there's a musical that does come out during the golden age that is going to redefine how a comedy works. And that's a show, Ray, you should be somewhat familiar with. It is called Guys and Dolls. And how do we meet each other, Ray? Uh, you directed me in Guys and Dolls in the summer of 2005. Who'd you play, Ray? Nathan Detroit. Absolutely. Adelaide, look, you're getting yourself upset. You. <laughs> We're going to get married. Guys and Dolls is actually a very fascinating story. It's based on the short stories of Damon Runyon. Runyon Land. It's a story about a bunch of gangsters and malls that live in New York City. And they decided they're going to turn this into a, a musical. And so they got a guy named Frank Lesser to write the score. Now, Frank Lesser... They wanted more originally. They wanted Frank more! Frank Lesser. Frank Lesser is probably best known today for the canceled song, I Really Can't Stay. And Where's Charlie? Baby, It's Cold Outside. Oh, yeah. And so Frank Lesser created actually a very interesting score for Guys and Dolls because he, his feeling was, why doesn't the music sound like the environment? that a show takes place in. And Guys and Dolls was about gangsters, so the first thing that you heard in his score to let the audience know, like, automatically what world they were in. It's what you'd hear at the horse races, right? He also lyrically wrote in the vernacular of these characters. He wasn't worried about trying to make it sound pretty like songs from before him, like the 20s and 30s, which they were just looking to sell hits, things like Blue Moon, right? Blue Moon, I saw you standing alone without a dream in my heart. Without a love of my own. Now, the book writer of Guys and Dolls is a guy by the name of Joe Swirling. And the producers and everyone take a look at Joe Swirling's script, and they're like, it's not good. Uh, and Frank Lesser's score is amazing. So they're like, we have to get rid of Joe Swirling. So they literally throw out, folks, every single word that Joe Swirling wrote for Guys and Dolls, except for one little joke somewhere. And Joe Swirling today still gets credit for Guys and Dolls. And still gets money from the book of guys. I mean, his relatives get money from the book of guys and dolls, which opened in 1951. Should we do the, uh, what's the opening number called? Fugue for Tin Horns. Yeah, should we do it? Yeah. I got the horse right here. His name is Paul Revere. And there's a guy that says if the weather's clear. Can do. Can do. This guy says the horse can do. He says the horse can do. Can do. Can do. I got I'm picking the Valentine because on the morning line, I can't the drunk is not the bigger than five to nine. Yeah, then epitaph comes in. An epitaph. Anyway, but like, but like you just said, this guy says the horse can do, 
right? That's that's what you would hear on the streets of New York. Now, if you were writing a song from like before Frank Lesser, you didn't want to make it sound pretty, right? The poets would be able to make this time. <laughs> yes. I believe Epitaph would be able to make the time in front of the other horses yeah. by a good length, <laughs> by a good length. That's so good. What if we got Stubby K? <laughs> oh, he's good. <laughs> May I have your attention, please? You, Elaine May. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, listeners, uh, but what could be more exciting than spring showers, green trees, and new flowers? How about new Patreon subscribers? Tell us more, my little Cinco de Mayo. Oh, well, let's do some spring cleaning of your wallets, folks. Head on over to Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. C-O-M. And search This Was A Thing, the podcast. I'm not going to spell that out for you folks. And set a monthly donation, and even a dollar a month helps us. Your contributions help us continue doing what we're doing. Get so many more episodes, 26 at least, but we're working our way to get a lot more for you folks. Just be ready. Get ready for audio overdrive. That's right. And the general public does not get those 26 episodes. You... You only get them. Hey, hey, for spring, you know what I'm going to do? What? I'm off to pick flowers now. What? Can I join? I don't know. Can you? May I join Mr. Schneider? Yeah, I just, I think you just should learn how to say it correctly. That's all. May. May I join? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, But you probably don't. You're allergic to a lot of this stuff. Yeah, this is actually really bad pollen season for me, so... So Guys and Dolls is also a pretty big one. Now, like we said before, the golden age means that it's at its most fertile period. And so all of a sudden, hit after hit after hit after hit keeps coming out from people like Rodgers and Hammerstein and Alan J. Lerner and Frederick Lowe and Frank Lesser and Betty Comden and Adolph Green, um, Julie Stein, Bob Merrill. All of these people are contributing to creating this pretty epic sound. And pop music at this time is going to be show tunes. It's going to be singers, popular singers like Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin. Then something is going to really help move musical theater along. And that's going in the golden age, I should say. And that's going to be a television show on Sunday nights. That television show is? The Ed Sullivan Show. So Ed Sullivan had this show Sunday nights. He filmed in New York. And he had singers and actors and entertainers and dancers on the show, jugglers, comedians. So many people the got Beatles. Their, the Beatles. Oh, I'm going to get to that because that's going to kill Broadway. But because he was filming in New York, he was so close to Broadway theaters. And so he would have people come on. And unlike today when you watch like David Letterman or you watch Jimmy Fallon, a Broadway show might go on. And when they do, they probably only sing like one song and that's it. Ed Sullivan had such a respect for the Broadway community, they would come on and do 15, 20-minute segments of the show. So once again, even if you weren't living in New York, you could sit there and you could watch pieces of South Pacific. You could watch pieces of My Fair Lady. You could watch Guys and Dolls and still be in the know. Uh, Broadway was such a hot commodity that like covers of like Life Magazine, Time Magazine – all featured Broadway composers the same way that we know everything about people's lives today that are celebrities. It's exactly how everybody felt with about Broadway actors. Broadway was looked at as a legitimate place to be. So 
musical theater, once again, is absolutely everywhere. Everybody's listening to it. And then what starts to happen is, is that a lot of publishing companies start to feel that the text of musical theater is important enough for it to be published. So there was a group called Fireside. And if you belong to Fireside, you would get the script to the show. So now, even if you couldn't get to New York, you could read it. Well, that's how important musical theater was. It's like Columbia House. Just like Columbia House. And these shows, which all were really about American optimism and about and about like get up and can do spirit, those start getting exported to around the world and suddenly around the world that's what people start to identify with musicals people start to identify with americans back then when they're thinking of america they're thinking of oklahoma they're thinking of carousel they're thinking of guys and dolls that's how they're viewing americans it's coming through that lens yes movies as well was an important part of it but nothing like musical theater because musical theater was like homegrown american entertainment as the late 50s go on, then it becomes not only about the writers, but more star personalities come out. So we've talked about Ethel Merman, who was probably the most iconic woman in terms of musical in theater. In the world. She introduced so many amazing standards, Embraceable You, uh, You're the Top. I mean, so so many- You don't need analyzing. You don't need analyzing. There's no business like show business. She was this massive, massive presence. Then, But there was also other people like Mary Martin, who I mentioned before, who was very sweet, very innocent. Also in uh, the late 50s, we start to get some male emerging actors. We know about like John Raid and Alfred Drake, who were like these singers who had grown up on Broadway. But then suddenly movie stars start to come to Broadway. Whether or not they can sing or not is totally open for debate. So that's people like Robert Preston, who did The Music Man, mm -hmm. and probably one of the most iconic musicals in history, because many consider it to be the perfect musical. 1956, that's My Fair Lady, uh, written by Lerner and Lowe. Now, did you know that many other people had been offered to write My Fair Lady, and they turned it all down. Really? Yes. Do you know why? Because they didn't want to have to deal with pigs? Close. Pygmalion? Yes. So, my, so as you know, friends, My Fair Lady is written uh, by George Bernard Shaw, not the CNN anchor. And it's a political play. It's a political play about the class system and how we judge people based on how they speak. There's not really anything there to sing about, and there's no love story. So everyone that got offered it from Rodgers and Hammerstein to this to that, to that were like, no, there's nothing. Like, what the hell are we going to write about? There's nothing here. Lerner and Lowe said, no, I think we found our way into it. And they created probably one of the most romantic musicals ever created. And for the star of it, they were like, we need... This is also a pretty big innovation for musical theater. They said, we need an actor. We don't care if the person can sing. We need someone who can act the role. Acting really had not been thought of all that much in musical theater, seriously. So they brought in Rex Harrison, the actor. And Rex Harrison was like, yeah, I can't sing. And they're like, we'll write around it. Like, don't worry about it. Apparently, he refused to go on stage for the first preview because he didn't realize there was going to be a band, like an orchestra. And he got terrified because he could not hear like anything anymore and he hid in his dressing room for two hours really yeah and they finally had to like threaten legal action to get him out of there eliza was played by a new actress named julie andrews and this was her big debut there's a story that she was really bad in rehearsal and then the writer moss hart uh, sorry the director moss hart took her to his house for the weekend Gave her like a private coaching or something. And when she came back, she then had this brilliant performance. Oh, wow. Oh, that I always thought would be like a good movie or play. Like what happened in that, oh, yeah. in that weekend. So Rex Harrison cannot sing. It's going to talk his way through the show. But that's okay. People don't seem to mind that. Here's a little. Uh, this I think this is so cool. This is a little documentary on how My Fair Lady got made. And this is Rex Harrison recreating him yelling at the conductor that he could not hear the music. I'm an ordinary man. 
Who desires nothing more than just an ordinary chance to live exactly as he likes and do precisely what he wants? Can you hear me? Yes. What? Yes, I can hear you, Rex. Well, I can't hear you. How can you hear me? Excuse me. <laughs> you don't seem to be blowing in this number. Would you mind just running to the back of the head and seeing if you can hear me? I play in a minute, Mr. Harrison. You do? Ye God. As the 60s then start to emerge, we get people like Charles Strauss and Lee Adams. They do Bye Bye Birdie, a guy by the name of Jerry Herman. And we also start to get like the invention of the director choreographer. So prior to a gentleman really by the name of Jerome Robbins, musical theater sort of was separated into two separate parts, which was individuals who directed the show. And then it was time for a dancer. They tapped in another person and they taught them a dance and they tapped back out again. Jerome Robbins, who does things like on the town and stuff like that, he says, wait a minute, I kind of want to have creative control over everything. So he becomes the director slash choreographer. And that's going to change the way musicals start to then move. And his big show is West Side Story. Da 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 da. Do it, do it for me. Da 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 da. Ba ya da da. Boop boop boop. Beep ba da dee ba ba ha. And who wrote lyrics? Uh, lyrics is written by Stephen Sondheim. Stephen Sondheim, who was the protege of. Oscar Hammerstein. Very good. So you see how it's all connected? I do, yeah. So, yeah, so West Side Story uh, is going to emerge with the great Jerome Robbins at the helm, and suddenly musical theater is now going to feel sophisticated in a way, because a lot of what he uses is ballet, and the composer Leonard Bernstein uses uh, a lot of opera. So all of a sudden, musical theater feels like artsy-fartsy, but in a nice way. The 60s go on, we get things like Camelot and how to succeed in business without really trying. So as time is going on, This is where it goes. But then there's going to be a major shift in 1963 and 1964, because in 1963, John Kennedy is shot. And with that, all of a sudden, America sort of loses all of its optimism. The next year, we're having civil rights. Then we're having the sexual revolution. Von Meter's out of a job. Von Meter's out of a job. We're having the Vietnam conflict. And suddenly, not only is the world changing, but music is changing. Because, like you said, in February of 1964, Ed Sullivan does have a broadcast. And who was on the broadcast, right? The Beatles. Now, do you know what they sang? Uh, I want to hold your hand. And what's the other song? Is it a musical theater song? It is. Oh, it's from it's from Music Man. Yeah, most people yeah. forget. Uh, Until There Was You. Yeah, Till There Was You. So most people forget this, but the mu- like I think like if you want to know how powerful musical theater was, the Beatles decided for the two songs that they were going to present to the United States for the first time one of them was a show tune that's crazy i think that's a pretty big yeah Yeah, that's statement of what musical theater could be but because of the beatles and the new sound suddenly people especially young people didn't want to be listening to this like music that was optimistic and joyful they wanted something that expressed who they were so this is where like the doors come in the beatles come in janice joplin jimi hendrix all of those bands and uh, groups back then that feel like they have something to express, that's what people are going to be gravitating towards. So now if you listen to a musical, you're kind of square and you're kind of old-fashioned. The same time this is happening, though, movies are starting to change as well because movies are getting out of the studio system and now they're getting into more independent studios, which means more adventurous. So you're getting movies like The Graduate or Midnight Cowboy or Blow Up, where movies are more sexual, more heated, and that's what people want to see at this time. They're looking for more visceral things. Unfortunately, musical theater does not change. It actually like doubles down. It's like, we'll give you more joy and more optimism. 
and 1964 is the year that everyone considers to be like the last great year of the golden age of musical theater because after 1964 once the beatles come out the, this is all going to go away you will not be able to really find a song on the top 10 you will not find people waiting for original cast albums you'll find people that couldn't even tell you where you know, Broadway is located. But 1964 comes out Funny Girl, which introduces the world to Barbara Streisand. Hello, Dolly, which introduces the world to Carol Channing and the great music of Jerry Herman. And Fiddler on the Roof. Okay, so Fiddler was 64. And they consider Fiddler to be the last of the great book musicals. Okay. And when we say a book musical, we mean a story that's moving like in a linear fashion that's about a story. Because in 1966... Once the Golden Age is like officially over, someone who was producing so much in the Golden Age, a gentleman by the name of Hal Prince who produced things like West Side Story, he's deciding to become a director. And he decides he wants to make things a little bit more revolutionary. And he creates a musical with John Kander and Fred Ebb and Joe Mastroff called Cabaret, which is a very dark musical about Germany before the Nazis officially take over and half the show feels like a book musical that moves in a linear fashion but what Hal Prince does that's pretty revolutionary is he creates the character of an MC who sort of floats around and can comment on action can pop up in scenes that he was never even a part of to begin with and with that Hal Prince sort of shatters all of the rules about what a musical can do. And then in a few years when he joins forces with Stephen Sondheim, who also wants to shatter what musical theater can do, there is no going back to the golden age. And so with that, we then sort of close the door on the golden age of musical theater. And once again, a golden age is a time when musicals are at its most productive, at its most fertile. And the question now that everyone is asking, are we currently in a golden age? We'll talk about that when we come back. This was a thing, this was a thing. And now, this is a sketch. All right, next actor. Name, please. Ike. Ukulele Ike. Ike. It's good to see you again, but there's nothing for you in this show. But Mr. Rogers, Mr. Hammerstein, I've changed. I swear I have. I can do these new golden-plated shows. Really, I can. Ike. No, please, I beg you, like I begged the manager of the Orpheum Hotel, not to slip it all the way in, you know? Ike, please. Mr. Rogers, Mr. Hammerstein, I don't know if you just heard me, but I said I let the manager of the Orpheum Hotel slip something up my buttocks in order for me to stay free at his hotel. Ike, please. It was my ukulele, Mr. Hammerstein. My ukulele. It was the one thing my grandmother brought over from Russia. Please don't make me go back there. I want to be in this show. I want to be one of the little children that makes Mary Maud and say, Wow, I'm racist now. Yes, I am. I know I have the acting range to do this, Mr. Hammerstein. No more gimmicks and gags and gadgets. No, sir, just real acting. Fine. Oh, boy. Hold on. Let me make sure it's still in tune. Getting shoved up your buttocks does horrors to the tuning. Come on now, Ike. All right. For for your Golden Age show, I'll be singing a very serious song. I killed my wife, I killed my kid, but what could I do? I flipped my lid and I killed for you. That's enough, Ike. Thank you. No. Thank you, Mr. Hammerstein. Mr. Rogers. Now may I borrow your kerchief? When I hit the last chord, some feces fell onto the footlights. Thank you. This was a sketch. A few years back, a musical came out on Broadway called Hamilton. You might have heard of it. And that became a juggernaut. And with that, everyone started saying, oh, we're now in a new golden age 
of musical theater. Can you reuse the term? You can have a second golden age. Oh, that's fair. I think so. Second golden age. So, pe- so people are saying that this is like the new golden age. So, so my question, Ray, after everything that I've told you today, do you feel like we are in a second golden age of musical theater as we're recording this in uh, the early 2020s. I don't know enough about the current state of musicals and Broadway and stuff, but I will say this. I appreciate Hamilton because it's bringing musicals to the forefront even more than... Like Rent, I feel like was one of those musicals that helped get musicals into like the gent and people like outside of musicals. Wicked, I think, and I think Hamilton has been even bigger than Rent and Wicked. Like for getting people that would never have interest in musicals or going to see a musical or getting them into a theater. Yeah, people are going to see it. So I don't necessarily know if the other stuff is on par with what Hamilton does, but I think it's definitely getting more people interested in going to the theater. You know, out even without you know, mind mind you, COVID stuff. But I'm just saying, like, yes. And also, there's more ways of being able to listen and stream to stuff where maybe people would only have a record before that would never go see a, you know, like, oh, my neighbor, let me borrow this Funny Girl album. No, you're absolutely right. The excess, the so I think where we're at now is like there's more accessibility and more interest, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're in a golden age. Yeah, golden age to me is. Everything is, there's a lot of good stuff happening. I haven't heard anything on par with Hamilton. No, because there isn't. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, it's gotten more eyes and ears onto musical theater. I feel like there was just so many more groups during this golden age of musical theater. Mind you, though, this was a, what, 20, 21 year period, you know? So there's obviously still more time before we can really say if this period is the golden age or not, because who knows what's being cooked up or what's, you know, in previews right now, but... No, you're right. That's absolutely right. That's such a a good point. I don't don't know if... I don't think we're in a golden age, because I think you can't just say, oh, Hamilton. Yeah. That's one show. Yeah, exactly. It's It's, a juggernaut, yeah, exactly. but it's one show. And yeah, it's done more than a lot of many shows combined has done, you know, but... Yeah, I mean, you can... I mean, you look at, like, some of these Broadway shows, and you go... There's Guys and Dolls playing next to, you know, Carousel, which is playing next to you know, Oklahoma. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, it's, it's such a fertile period. Not to say that there weren't like flops and stuff no, during yeah. that period, but like, I just, I can, I don't think just saying, oh, Hamilton, but I will say it is a time of new exposure. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we're going back to that because mm-hmm. now I think people, like you said, know what Hamilton are. I think, you, you know, Ever since the Chicago movie came out in 2002, I think people yeah. have been learning that it's okay to like like musicals yeah. again. Because for a very long time, you were looked at as well. I mean, that, pathetic as, if as you someone like that did musicals and stuff yeah. in high school, did theater. You know, it was like oh, lame. I think there's two major shifts in musicals. I mean, yes, Chicago, but I think high school musical movies yes, yeah. were huge because that yeah. showed, oh, cool Troy Bolton, cool basketball player can also sing and dance. And then Glee, I think, was huge and gave exposure to musical theater in a way that did. Because from the time that I graduated high school to when my three little brothers who were younger than me, our, our theater is, oh, cool, you know, like, oh, great, you can do theater, where it was just like, oh, look at, oh. Ray must be gay. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, now yeah. it's like, no, it's, you can you can be the cool kid and do musicals now in school. Absolutely. Is, it, it blows my you mind. It makes can, me happy. You can even go major in it yeah. as part of like yeah. your college experience. Yeah. But you're right. High School Musical, Glee, Smash, all of those shows. Also, a, a show that doesn't get enough credit, but I think should, is American Idol. Because a yeah. lot of them were introducing quote unquote standards that were all coming from show tunes. Yeah. So all of these things together, plus, things like YouTube 
where I might be living in the Philippines. I might be living in like Germany. I can't go see Dear Evan Hansen, but I can go onto YouTube and I can I can see Dear Evan Hansen. The first thing that when YouTube came out in 2006, the thing that I was looking for most, I actually probably still have the playlist that I made was Broadway stuff, was finding old Broadway, either yeah. Tony performances yeah. or bootleg stuff. Cause it was like, oh my God, like I, it, at my fingertips, like, but you, you, the first thing I was using YouTube for was finding Liza Minnelli and old Broadway. Kind of the best, the kind of the best exactly. of all possible worlds. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if we're, I don't know if we're in a golden age because like I said before, I, I think just referring to one show. Show, but the notoriety and visibility and the acceptance of yes. it. I mean, granted, like we're in a different time period because now a lot of the people that are writing pop songs are not going over to Broadway. And that's normally where I think the familiarity came from, which was a lot of the popular singers at the time were taking Broadway shows singing those songs or a lot of those composers were straddling both worlds where they would write pop music as well as writing show music does but, that make sense but now you have like someone that has a name already like cindy lopper yes coming in yeah cindy lopper elton Boots, john you know what i mean and yeah. they're writing shows sarah borellis yeah exactly yeah exactly you know so people they already have that notoriety or name recognition yeah but i but i think but i think that like i don't i can't imagine like sarah borellis's she used to be mine going to number one on the charts yeah that's fair you know what i yeah, mean yeah yeah and honestly after the golden age ended if you getting a song out of a Broadway show and onto the charts was like a needle in a haystack. And the, send in the clowns. Send in the clowns was it's probably Sondheim's most popular song, which I don't I don't know. I think he says so many other wonderful, beautiful yeah, I know. music. It's such a random. It's song. such a random choice. I ever hear Frank Sinatra's explanation of it. They're like, "What does it mean, Frank?" And he goes, "Guy loves a girl." Uh, she leaves them. Yeah, these clowns. Send them in. Send them in, baby. Oh God, I didn't know you were actually going to send in a whole room. <laughs> oh boy, the clowns scare me. Clown scammy. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's a lot of interesting things that are happening right now. And maybe we are in a second golden age of musical theater. Who knows? But this is how the first golden age started and how it came to an end. That's incredible, Precious. In some ways, I think when Rodgers and Hammerstein decided to experiment with the form in Oklahoma, it was like rolling the dice. It was like playing a game. Speaking of games. <laughs> my God. What a segue. This was a thing, and now it's a quiz. This is a this was a quiz. With Mark Schroeder. Mark Schroeder, welcome back to the podcast. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me. Mark and I have known each other now for a long, long time. I think I met Mark like a year after I met you, Ray. We go pretty yeah. far back. Two years or so. Uh, so anyway, one of the things I remember, though, about Mark is that Mark, when I remember, said he wasn't the hugest fan of musicals, except... I think you said you knew all the words to Les Mis because your mom used to play it in the house uh, all the yeah. time. Is yeah. that right? Am yeah. I remembering She really that fell in love with that. And every weekend while the, the, she was doing housework, she would just blast it through the entire house every Saturday. So I just learned it by osmosis. It just you better sort of listen sunk to me, in. Mark. You know what I am? Mm -hmm. Master of the house. Ah, keeper of the zoo. Look at that. Look mm -hmm. at that. So mm -hmm. that's like, Mark, mm -hmm. do you like musicals at all though or no? have you as in the in the years that we've known each other has have your tastes changed any? They have. They absolutely have. I, I enjoy uh, entertainment of all kinds now and sometimes you just need a, a lighter, you know, fun little little romp. Like a musical like Fun Home or Next Come to From to Away. Normal. Exactly. Something that's Next nice and normal. glossy and normal yes. and yeah, something that's <laughs> not going to terrify 
right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that Not makes like me the so happy. Scary things on television. I directed Mark in a musical once, and he was fantastic. Oh, a musical. That's right. Babes in Arms. Oh, it was wonderful. That's right. I forgot about that. I'm sorry. That in I a barn. That, but that was it was good. It was really a good production. That was a good time. What do you have for us today? Well, I got ourselves a, a little game because I, I hearkening back to the 40s and the 50s, a magical time for musical theater. Yes. So Ugh. many classic titles that yes. we still know and love today. Yes. But would we still know and love them if they were produced under their original titles? Oh, shit. Oh, jeez. And we'll find out today with a little game called A Musical by Any Other Name. Rob and Ray, you're going to compete against each other? My wife's a fucking whore and I caught her with the bellboy. <laughs> Became the music man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, essentially. <laughs> I'm going to read a clue of an alternate title for a famous musical okay. of the Golden Age. Okay. And the first person to correctly guess the real title of the musical wins a point. And this is a synonym game, so get mm. your thesaurus out. Okay. Here we go. Number one. Violinist over the awning. Fill on the roof. 46th U.S. State. Oklahoma. Audible vibration of harmonics. Sound of music. That is correct. Orphan arm yourself. Oh, I, oh. Andy, get your gun. Friend Tribbiani. How Joey. Joey. You're getting there, Ray. You're going to get him. You're yeah, going to get him, man. You're going to get him. Merry-go-round. Carousel. Carousel. Polynesia, Melanesia, and Stain your Conestoga. Yeah, paint your wagon. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. The wind's name's Maria. <laughs> Mariah. Yeah, it's spelled Maria. But we say it Mariah. Ah, well, my wind is Mariah. <laughs> is this part of the song? <laughs> you get three points for that, right? The nighty contest. Pajama game. Ugh. Condemned Northerners. Damn Yankees. Damn Ugh. Yankees. One's nonpartisan female. Fiorello. <laughs> What is it? One? Say it again? One's nonpartisan female. My fair lady. Yes. Uh, Previously on top of bedding. Once upon a mattress. Yes. Bloom percuss tune. Flower drum song. Yes. Wow. Destiny. Kismet. Yes. A sapling develops in Kings County. A tree grows in Brooklyn. Yes, that is wow. correct. Sizzling. Rob Schneider answering before I would even give the full clue. This man is a, He's a lonely homosexual. Please make friends with him. And Rob, where can they get the book? <laughs> My book, 50 Key Stage Musicals uh, by Routledge Press is available on Amazon.com. Go ahead, check it out. What, what's one of the musicals in that? 50 Key Musicals. Uh, there's such musicals as My Fair Lady. Oh. And Oklahoma. Oh. And Guys and Dolls. Oh. Yeah, some of those good ones. Okay. And some controversial ones like Susical. Oh. <gasps> I know, people are very upset. They're like, why the fuck Susical in there, and I'm like, read the book. It's a key musical, motherfucker. Did Kevin Chamberlain write the uh, chapter? Nobody gave us a blurb on the book. Okay, <laughs> which was very sweet of him. Thank you, Kevin. Hey, I'll do anything. Susical made it in here. <laughs> I'll do anything for Susical. Anything. You can find us on at This Was a Thing Pod on Instagram, or go to our website www.thiswasathing.com. And if you really like what we're doing, Mark, head on over to Patreon.com and give us five dollars a month. You can give a little less if you want, but $5 a month gets you exclusive content oh. that you cannot see or hear anywhere else. And we have some fun things on there. We did a field trip to the Reagan Library. Uh, we have brackets. Uh, we get we do some nut mud wrestling. It's kind of exciting. Could I pay more? Could one pay more? Yes, actually, you could pay more, Mark. Oh. And you get more benefits the more you pay. Oh, well, I got to look into that. I hope you do. Patreon.com forward slash this was a thing podcast. All right. Till next time, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. 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 That's good for you. Because it's a it's a musical theater one, right? This is the episode. I'm gonna go get some lunch with Mark. Oh boy. 
Thanks for listening to This Was a Thing, and a big thanks to the folks that keep this show running. Our editor, Daniel Cut-Cut Schwartzberg, our composer, Billy Better Than DC Reese, our social media director, Gabe Hashtag Crawford, our graphic designer, Natalie's Nothing Too Graphic DeSavia, and finally, our games coordinator, Mark the Shark Schroeder. If you liked what we did today, make sure to head on over to iTunes to rate and review us. The more stars you leave us, the more love we feel. Hey, speaking of love, show us some social media love. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at This Was A Thing Pod and Facebook we are This Was A Thing Podcast. Reach out, we'd love to hear from you. And if you really like what we did today, head on over to Patreon.com and become one of our sponsors and you'll get access to special episodes, interviews, and merch. That's Patreon. Search This Was A Thing and support us so we can keep doing this show. 